Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dave's Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, David Dennison, and this week we're going to be talking about the plight of frustrated liberals during this 2024 election season. We're also going to be talking about the recently announced Academy Award nominees and the controversy that the announcement has caused. Finally, we're going to be taking a trip down memory lane and discussing an interesting, if not entirely relevant, piece of trivia related to U.S. presidential elections. If you're just joining us, Dave's Dispatch is a listener-supported podcast that exists as a companion to the Dave's Dispatch newsletter published on Substack at www.denisonwrites.substack.com. That's Denison with two N's, and that's right like to write something down. If you like what you're hearing today, I hope you will consider going over to Substack and becoming a paid subscriber to the newsletter, Once again, if you are new, all we really do on the podcast is review what we went over in the newsletter. So if you have already read the newsletter, you don't need to tune in unless, of course, you just like hearing my voice. And without further ado, off we go. I had this teacher in school that I absolutely hated. We'll call her Mrs. Asshole, which is not her real name. Not only did I hate Mrs. Asshole, Mrs. Asshole hated me. Bitterly. She picked on me, gave me detention for minor offenses, unduly downgraded my work, and was just a relentless, unflinching turd to be around at all times. If you know me in real life and you remember this far back, a few of these anecdotes could give away Mrs. Asshole's true identity. If you guess it, do me and her a favor and don't put it in the comments. Mrs. Asshole deserves her privacy. Who knows, she may even have reformed though I doubt it. To paint a picture of how mightily this person sucked, we were doing a unit on cell structure, and Mrs. Asshole put some music on, a nice change given her typically frosty classroom ambiance. The song, which was a little on the nose, but okay, was Celebrate by Cool in the Gang. Get it? Cell. Celebrate. Yeah. Anyway, that song's a banger, so most of us were pretty happy about the new classroom vibes. Until the song finished, and Mrs. Asshole put it on again. And again. And again. For the whole rest of class. Not only did this entirely bury any fun she might have momentarily created in the atmosphere, it totally ruined for me both Cool and the Gang and Cells. Another quick story, also about music. My awesome garage band was playing at a supervised homecoming week party and were rocking some torch song or another. I obliged the crowd to get their lighters in the air. Mrs. Asshole stalked onto the stage, grabbed me by the arm, and demanded that I withdraw my instructions. Lighters weren't allowed, don't you know? She did it during a rather intricate piece of choreography, and it totally fucked up the number. Later in the same show, we were throwing down a menacing rendition of Rage Against the Machines, Killing in the Name of, and Mrs. Asshole straight up cut the power to the soundstage. See, an awkward suburbanite mosh pit had formed in the backyard of whatever student was hosting this soiree, and that was unacceptable. So Mrs. Asshole placed herself between my band and the crowd and started screaming, No noshing! No noshing! 
during Rage Against the Machine. The irony. It's like a physical punch to the throat. I seem to have buried the lead a bit here. This was all a big wind-up to say that sometimes people are lame and you think they suck. Sometimes you want to take action against their suckiness. It can be tempting. But often, a better approach is to hit a pillow or something and move on. Especially when taking action is likely to have negative consequences for you. Since I started this newsletter, I've picked up some liberal readers and also some conservative ones. If you're one of the conservative ones and you have no interest in seeing Democratic voters make smart choices over the course of the next 11 months, this post is probably not going to trigger much enthusiasm in you. In fact, you should probably stop reading altogether. Wouldn't want you getting a peek behind the curtain and sniffing out the ingredients to my Democrat special sauce. There's a sentiment taking shape on the left that goes something like this. Trump sucks, but so does Biden. If we want the Democratic Party to improve, the best way to ensure that they do is to make sure Biden goes down hard. That way, party elites will learn their lesson and stop giving progressives the finger. For many reasons, this is a poor strategy, with a near zero chance of achieving its stated aim. Still, before I jump up and down on it, I'm going to steel man for a minute and consider the idea in the most charitable possible light. First of all, as a frustrated liberal myself, I get what frustrated liberals are feeling right now. For the third cycle in a row, the party has lined up behind a moderate, status quo dinosaur who not only won't fight for progressive values, it's not even clear he knows what they are. That sucks. When your priorities are ignored, you're treated like an obnoxious, unserious kid, and then the people doing that ask you not only to vote for them, but to do it with a grateful smile on your face, the impulse to tell them to stick it in one of the dark places can be overpowering. And defeat does teach a valuable lesson. Except not really, and we'll come to why in a moment. Here's what I can sort of, kind of, a little bit get behind. Let's say you knew to an absolute certainty that Joe Biden was going to lose the election. Not, it doesn't look good, but it's over. Under those circumstances, there might be a case for letting him go down in flames, a landslide, not a close call, so that the message to the party is unmistakable. Ignore us at your peril. I have fantasized about this many times, and not just in this cycle. This isn't a good idea, but first, here's something that is. Vote against Biden in the primary. That's what primaries are for. I do not myself have an overwhelming fondness for either Dean Phillips or Marianne Williamson, his two challengers, but they are actually alternatives to the president for the Democratic nomination, and they are actually in the race. Primaries are rarely taken seriously by voting Democrats, though they should be. For liberals who want a more representative party, primaries are the way to get one. Abstaining altogether just makes you a non-entity. But for the rest of this, I'm going to assume that the Democrats will nominate Joe Biden, because that's what polls show happening. And now, the case against the let-it-burn strategy. Unless you're a clairvoyant, you never actually know what the outcome of an election will be until it's over. 
polls can be wrong, conditions can shift at the last minute, and people can have 11th hour changes of heart right there in the voting booth. There's some reason to think this could be a factor in November. The Republican position on abortion, for example, is so deeply unpopular, the electoral ramifications aren't well understood. In the last midterm, the Republicans were already high-fiving on Monday only to get blindsided with a mysteriously shitty Election Day showing on Tuesday. Point is, even if you think Biden's going down, he may actually not go down. Another problem, Biden isn't the only guy on the ticket. Even if you can't stand him, other Democrats are, believe it or not, worthwhile. And not just at the national level. I guess you could get around that by voting carefully down ticket, then writing in Mickey Mouse or something for president, but that seems like a lot of trouble just to register a protest vote that nobody will ever care about. And sorry, but anyone telling you they're both the same is really telling you I don't know very much about how government works. Or at best, they're telling you I'm a single-issue voter and there's not enough daylight between them on the one thing I can be bothered to care about, which I don't think is that much better. The only real example of an issue on which Trump and Biden are close to simpatico is Israel. And you could spend a long time scouring Washington, D.C., comb through both major parties, and not come up with many politicians who deviate from the norm on that one. If that bothers you, I certainly understand. But there is only one candidate in this thing whose views diverge from the pro-Israel standard, and that's Marianne Williamson. Supporting Williamson in the primary to send a message on Israel, if that's your sticking point with Biden, is perhaps something to consider. Supporting Williamson to actually be the president? Less so. We'll save the merits of a Williamson candidacy for another post, maybe, but the real point here is she not only isn't a threat to win, she isn't a threat even to force a shift in thinking on the part of National Democrats. Oh, and voting for a third party like RFK Jr.? Yeah, don't do that. This will piss off a lot of people, but third party candidates will only become viable in the United States once we have a third party. Right now, we don't. We have wandering groups of unaffiliated voters, some on the right, some on the left, but that isn't the same thing as having a real organized block that is something other than Democrat or Republican. I would like it if we did have this and had something more akin to a parliamentary system, but a presidential election is really not when we are going to magically give birth to this new tripartite political framework. I'm a Democrat. Not because I love the Democratic Party, I emphatically do not, but because Republicans on a whole host of issues are worse. I can choose incremental change in a mostly palatable direction, or significant change in a wrong direction. My favorite meal, significant change in a right direction, is almost never on the menu. But that doesn't mean I just go hungry. We've seen a Trump presidency, we've seen a Biden one, and I prefer the latter. It's really that simple. The U.S. is a two-party system. You get one or you get the other. Changing that 
probably isn't possible until we can find some way to get money out of politics, thus ending the need for candidates to assimilate themselves into big, well-funded machines just to buy yard signs. But here's the main thing. If your belief is that a Biden shellacking will somehow teach the Democrats to take progressives more seriously, my question to you is, what possible reason could you have for thinking that is the lesson they'll learn? Do you not remember the 90s? Okay, some of you, in fact, do not remember the 90s. Short version, however much you think Democrats suck now, they sucked vastly harder then. A lot of that was down to a cynical messaging strategy known as triangulation, which is best described as trying to act and sound like Republicans so that voters in the middle won't know the difference. It worked, too, at least insofar as it made Bill Clinton president twice. But it also saddled us with overstuffed prisons, a multi-decade setback in healthcare policy, and a deregulated financial system that basically amounts to a bunch of coked-up toddlers playing with a hydrogen bomb. What I'm saying is, running to the right is what makes candy-ass Democrats feel the safest. It's in their DNA. If they get trounced in November, there's really no reason to think they'll all decide the missing piece was single-payer health care. Much more likely, they'll go, so, Trump, how might we channel some of that magic? Look, you can't totally blame them for this. Professional Democrats don't take the left seriously because the left has never done anything to frighten them. And I'm afraid that denying them your vote in November isn't going to change that. Trust me, I know a lot of these people. They are already not counting on you to show up. Back to my school days. Things with Mrs. Asshole reached a point where they were no longer tolerable for me. I was on the verge of doing something drastic. Not like something violent or illegal or anything, but something sufficiently suburb-rocking as to get me into major trouble. Yelling, swearing at her, storming out of the classroom, something like that. Instead of doing this, I handwrote a seriously unkind letter at the desk in my room, read it a few times, threw it away, and felt okay. Mrs. Asshole did not get any better, but I did. I'd released necessary pressure from some tucked-away valve. In the context of an election cycle, writing a hate letter might be tweeting or posting or TikToking about how you're not going to vote Biden because he's not progressive enough, and it's probably a good thing to do. You'll feel better, which ain't nothing, and there's always the off chance that Biden or somebody in his orbit will hear your cries, get spooked, and think about pandering to you for a change. But don't actually follow through. It's not going to get you where you want to be. Hey, if you were never going to vote for Biden anyway, there's really nothing for you to do here. This isn't the post in which I try to convince you that there is. But there is one left-of-center party that stands a chance in November. If you are a left-of-center voter, your choice, however distasteful you find it, is clear. Okay, we're just going to take a short break here between segments. A reminder, Dave's Dispatch is a reader-supported newsletter. And trust me, 
a very small outfit. If you like what you've heard here, please consider going to denisonwright.substack.com and becoming a paid subscriber. The help will be immeasurable to me. I mean, not literally, it will be measurable. What I mean to say is that it will be very significant to me. And next up, we are going to talk about one of my least favorite events of the calendar year, the Oscars. Off we go. I belonged to a number of performing arts-related clubs and societies when I was in high school. I was in choir. I participated in the drama productions, the musicals, and really any stage-oriented group that would have me. After almost every show, as I expect was common at schools across the country, we would distribute the paper plate awards. Sometimes we'd all vote, other times a select committee of higher-ups would pick the winners, However we did it, though, it was the highlight of every cast party, waiting in eager anticipation to discover who'd been named the best singer, the best dancer, the best actor, or who had the best makeup, best hair, or best legs. I don't mind telling you, I took home more than a few of these honors in my day, and there was nothing quite like the exhilaration of hearing my name read out loud, trying to catch the plate flung like a limp frisbee while all my friends cheered. The film industry has its own paper plate awards, and this year, as is becoming relatively commonplace, the list of nominees has caused a stir. I am talking, of course, about the Academy Awards, where on this year's slate, the snub heard round the world was Greta Gerwig missing out on a Best Director nod for Barbie, and the film's eponymous star, Margot Robbie, being excluded from the Best Actress category. In a move seemingly tailor-made to ignite a culture war tempest, Ryan Gosling, who played Ken, did see his name put forward for Best Supporting Actor. I haven't seen the flick yet, but apparently Ken is something like the movie's romantic interest and also its villain. And with the feminist, patriarchy-smashing themes present in the story, the passing over of the two highest-profile women involved in the filmmaking, next to the conspicuous recognition of the male lead, seems altogether too much like life imitating art. Gosling, ever the good ally, has called out the Academy for their myopia. But that hasn't stopped an online firestorm of outrage aimed at the Academy's 10,000-odd voting members for their stubborn inability to just get it right for once. As I said, I haven't seen Barbie. I'm not avoiding it or anything, and certainly plan to at some point. I just have two young kids, three pets, a full-time job, and a side hustle as a writer. And the one movie I got a pass to go out and see last year was, sorry, Oppenheimer. Yeah, that other one. So I can't comment on whether or not the women in question deserved to be honored or not. If public opinion, not to mention the box office performance, is any indication, they both very much did. And it wouldn't be the first time the Oscars wrongly snubbed a movie on, shall we say, suspicious grounds. I'll admit, I kind of rolled my eyes when Will Smith got mad a few years ago and started pushing the Oscars so white trend. That was until I saw Straight Outta Compton and had to conclude that, yeah, okay, Will Smith had a point. Straight Outta Compton was seemingly everything the Oscars values in a film. 
historical biopic focused on musical revolutionaries with actors doing uncanny impressions of famous figures. Despite this, the film netted only one nomination for Best Original Screenplay, and its excellent cast and story went totally unrecognized. The double standard couldn't have been clearer. Turn in an impression of a respectable famous person, Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles, Reese Witherspoon as June Carter Cash, and you're taking home a trophy. Portray black performers of vulgar street music, and maybe next time. But what kind of cracks me up about the Oscars is that we care so much about them at all. It's a profoundly weird exercise. Even the marketing power bestowed on a film or a performer that comes with the Oscar-nominated label is a bizarre thing for us small folk to regard. It's fair enough that Hollywood cares about this. The Oscars are industry awards, and they're in the industry. But why the rest of us should fixate on this when we aren't is something that genuinely confuses me. I get why people watch the Grammys. Fun, unique musical performances by elite artists is as good a reason as any to tune into a program. And the Tonys? Don't get me started. I don't even care who wins those. I'm just there for the show. But the Oscars? Self-important Hollywood bigwigs patting each other on the back for three hours? I mean, why? The red carpet procession is vastly more interesting than the awards themselves. It's not as though there's some grand democratic project at work here either. The process is as opaque as it is non-representative. 10,000 insiders whose identities are not made widely known voting in 17 different categories with no requirement that they actually see the films they're meant to be considering or read the screenplays they're meant to be honoring. As of 10 years ago, the Academy was like a million percent old, white, English-speaking men, and despite serious efforts to change that makeup, reportedly little progress has been made. And this is the body we allow to set the gold standards of excellence in filmmaking? Industry awards for filmmaking are in an actually crowded field. There's also the Golden Globes, of course. There's the Directors Guild of America Awards, the Astra Film and Creative Awards, the Satellite Awards, the Online Film Critics Society, and many, many, many more. And with the exception of that first one on the list, the Golden Globes, we mostly don't care about who won, who lost, or who got snubbed at any of those other ones. Why such extreme prestige for the Oscars? The answer, I think, is that we care about them because we care about them. It's totally circular. We've just decided that they matter, which is puzzling because they don't even really represent the film industry as most patrons experience it. You're not going to see a Marvel movie or a Star Wars episode up for Best Picture any more than the new Michael Connelly mystery or Lee Child thriller is going to win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. It's a very narrow sample of cinema that even generates the vaunted buzz, let alone gets picked. Yet, year after year, when this obscure clique of company men and women invariably fail to reward the correct movies, we all have a five-alarm ultra-bum-out and rage against the injustice of it all. 
My question, if the Oscars are so hopelessly broken, rather than rending our garments and howling at the moon, wouldn't a better approach be to simply stop caring about them? The reason you don't see winner of the St. Louis Film Critics Association Award on movie posters is that, forgive me, Nobody fucking cares which movie won the St. Louis Film Critics Association Award. We could, if we had a mind to, do that with the Oscars and relegate their judgments to the same dustbin of disinterest. If the Academy Award process is unfair, and it plainly is, let's get a new process. We know what these movies make at the box office. We could reward that, kind of like how books advertise New York Times bestseller. No, we'd rather preserve this goofy, quasi-magical selection process, like waiting for a kangaroo to tell us who's going to win the World Cup. I love the movies, and my love of them isn't dependent on which ones have taken Oscars and which haven't. A lot of winners are damn deserving, to be sure, but the designation is only this almighty thing because we have decided that it must be. If we chose not to do that, then Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig wouldn't have to care about getting snubbed by the Academy any more than they'd care about Jimmy Joe Neckbeard writing on his blog that he thought Barbie sucked. Snubs only count when the snubber has gravitas. Take that away and voila, the Oscars are reformed. I get that injecting a little competition into Hollywood is a good way to generate interest, but Hollywood already has competition aplenty. And looking to this arcane reward system to fix our societal ills is just insane. We actually do not have to perch barefoot on the rocks, nervously adjusting our togas and waiting for the oracle to tell us who will be favored this harvest. We can just go to the movies. Okay, one last break here. Just a reminder, this is reader and listener supported. If you've liked what you've heard, please consider going to my Substack newsletter called Dave's Dispatch. You can either Google that or search it on denisonwrites.substack.com and becoming either a free or a paid subscriber, either is a huge help to me. And finally, thank you so much for being here. We are now going to launch into a mildly obscure discussion. This really did start out as what I thought was going to be an interesting point that I had to make. I started doing some reading and some research, and I discovered that actually I really didn't have an important or interesting point to make, but I had discovered some mildly interesting things, and since it's going to be Friday morning when this likely comes out for you guys, I thought I'd just do it, and you can have a happy Friday enjoying a little walk down memory lane and a little discussion of U.S. presidential election history, everybody's favorite topic. Here we go. I was watching one of Trump's marathon late-stage Lenny Brucean rage rallies the other day, and a thought struck me. Are we ever going to get tired of this? I really do mean we, by the way. Love him or hate him, Trump is an attention thief, the likes of which I have never seen in professional politics. We can't quit him. With every fresh outrage, his fans rejoice, his detractors seethe, but it amounts to the same thing. 
all eyes on Donald J. Trump. I wondered, with Trump now having spent four years hibernating on Truth Social, seemingly getting weirder and less hinged by the day, is his routine ever going to just become old hat? Will we and will the press ever get bored and tune him out? I went looking for historical precedent, and, well, I didn't exactly find any. Trump is his own special creation. I did find some interesting history. So, mostly without political editorializing, here are some interesting things. Assuming Trump secures the Republican nomination, and it seems unavoidable that he will, it will only be the eighth time in U.S. history that a major party candidate has competed in three or more elections in that capacity. With a term-limited presidency, now, and a strong bias in favor of incumbency, it's unsurprising that this hasn't happened more often. To be clear, we're not counting the perennial losers, of which there are many. Lyndon LaRoche holds the record for most times running for president, having helmed an impressive eight dead-in-the-water campaigns. We are also not counting presidents who tried for a third term but failed to secure another nomination. If we limit this only to the guys who were an actual threat to win, though, Trump will make just eight times that a serious candidate went through a general election cycle more than twice. And here they are, in order. Numbers 1 and 2. John Adams ran against George Washington twice and lost before running against Thomas Jefferson and winning, so he was first. Jefferson, who was second, only lost that one time and went on to win twice more. Now, I almost didn't include these first two triple threats because elections were very different in this period. In fairness, they were our first three contests ever, and there was a learning curve. The way it worked in those days was relatively straightforward. The first-place finisher got to be president, and the second-place finisher took the VP spot. It seemed so simple. And it was, until 1800, when the top two spots went in a tie to Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, who would famously later kill Alexander Hamilton of Broadway musical fame in a duel. Jefferson and Burr were members of the same party, and their names appeared on the ballot together, even though there was an unspoken understanding that Jefferson's was in the top spot. He had already been VP. When they tied, though, Burr didn't see things that way. And when the matter went to Congress to break the tie, Burr fought hard for the big chair. This confusion led, three years later, to the passage of the Twelfth Amendment, which separated the president and vice president categories, and that's still how we do things today. Number three. Andrew Jackson won two consecutive terms after first losing to John Quincy Adams, whose father kicked off our list. Both men were famously complete assholes, and Jackson's reputation especially has suffered in modern times due to the fact that he owned slaves, and also that he did several genocides against Native Americans. The horrific Trail of Tears was Jackson's handiwork. He is now perhaps most famous for being the barely contestable, least deserving historical figure to appear on U.S. currency. And you can count this writer as being among the many who would be eager to see his likeness replaced with that of Harriet Tubman.
Number four, Grover Cleveland was the only president in U.S. history to serve two non-consecutive terms. Trump, if he pulls it off, will be the second. Cleveland won in 1884 against James Blaine, who was a Maine Republican, by sweeping the South, leaving only the upper Midwestern and Pacific states to Blaine, plus his home state and a pocket in New England. The best thing about this knowledge is that it allows me to say, James Blaine of Maine won mainly on the plain. And now that that's off my chest, Cleveland was subsequently unseated by Benjamin Harrison, who he then beat four years later to secure a second and final term. Number five. Arguably, this one could just be an honorable mention, but I'm including him to honor his persistence. William Jennings Bryan ran in three elections as a major party candidate and lost all three. He lost to William McKinley twice in a row, then bided his time for eight years before challenging William Howard Taft and again losing. Bryan was an interesting figure, to say the least. He was the youngest major party nominee in history for his first crack at the Oval Office, which, to be fair, did not exist until one year after his last campaign. Taft built it and was most famous for his fiery populist opposition to the gold standard. Now, this is slightly odd, given that returning to the gold standard is now a fiery populist, if somewhat niche, preoccupation. He also opposed the theory of evolution and was immortalized, sort of, in the play, later the film, Inherit the Wind, a fictionalization of the Scopes Monkey trial. The character, Matthew Harrison Brady, is a not-at-all thinly-veiled representation of William Jennings Bryan. And, spoiler alert, Brady's dramatic death as he tries to give his summation is both a symbolic and a truthful representation of events that actually took place. Bryan died five days after the real trial concluded. His side won, sort of, it's complicated, No, no, not right there in the courtroom, but he was prevented from delivering his summation. His very powerful words were distributed to the press later on, but because Clarence Darrow, the legendary defense attorney representing Scopes, declined to offer a summation of his own, correctly deeming the verdict a foregone conclusion, Brian was legally gagged. Number six, FDR, four for four, baby. That's right, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected in a record four straight elections and might have become something like an American Julius Caesar had his polio not finally cut him down. John Adams actually ran four times too, but he only won the once, so it's a bit less impressive. One interesting thing to note about FDR here. Okay, with FDR there are about 8,000 interesting things to note, but we haven't the time, is that a key issue now in 2024 with progressives is Joe Biden's support for Israel and his escalation of U.S. involvement in the presently unfolding conflict in the Middle East. I have argued, not altogether successfully, that however important this issue, there is no cause to think that Trump would take a substantively different approach. In 1940, FDR was running against Wendell Wilkie, a guy not totally dissimilar to Trump. 
Wilkie was a rich political neophyte with a scruffy outsider persona, and despite his immense wealth, regular folks loved him. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, Wilkie became an important ally to FDR in helping to convince the American people of the necessity of war. Now, obviously, Gaza is not Pearl Harbor, and in a million ways, things are very different today to how they were in 1941. But a constant in modern U.S. history is that support for military adventure has tended to transcend party politics. If Wendell Wilkie had been in the Oval Office on that December 7th, there is little reason to think that history would have played out much differently. Similarly, there is little reason to think that the war in the Middle East will be materially affected by the 2024 election. Number seven, the most recent example of a triple election major party candidate is Richard Nixon, who lost to JFK in 1960, then clawed his way to power when Lyndon Johnson declined to run for re-election in 68. Tricky Dick was re-elected in 72, but didn't last another full term due to Watergate. Nothing really to add here except to say that Nixon's 1960 election, at which point he was the sitting vice president, was the first time a presidential debate was ever televised. The story goes, those who listened to the first debate on the radio thought Nixon won. And for the record, I agree that he was the better debater. But TV viewers later reached a different conclusion upon seeing the men side by side. Folks thought Nixon looked sweaty and haggard, or so it is said. I have to say, I've watched it, and I don't see it. I think Nixon looked just fine, and that Kennedy looked kind of like a deer that wandered off a two-day bender right into headlights. And indeed, it turns out the story about the radio-TV divide is mostly an urban legend. But with Donald Trump's unquestionable prowess as a TV star, is Biden's increasingly noticeable age going to be a bigger factor this time around? My guess? It's a wash. Biden is likely to have some bad moments, but Trump is starting to give off Howard Beale vibes. Now, then again, the point of that movie was that Beale got pretty popular for a minute in there, so who knows? Like I said at the start, it's not clear what lessons, if any, are to be gleaned from all this. I just thought it was interesting. I thought you might think it was interesting, too. And so here you have my newsletters and my podcasts Friday offering. I will say, though, that getting free media by making reporters hang on his every utterance was central to Trump's strategy in both 2016 and 2020. So if the answer to my opening question, will we get tired of him, is yes, then that could spell trouble for Trump. Although, as a counterpoint, one final factoid, and this was actually the thing that I initially intended to look up when I started this whole business. If Trump loses, it will be the first time ever that that has happened to a president who ran top ticket in their third election. William Jennings Bryan lost all three, but remember he was never president. For Adams, Jefferson, Jackson, Cleveland, FDR, and Nixon, the third time was a charm. Now, yeah, Adams lost on his fourth try, but whatever, it was 224 years ago. In short, 
There is no reason to think that prolonged exposure to the electoral spotlight causes fatigue on the part of the American public. We'll see. Okay, that's our show. Thank you for tuning in to another installment of Dave's Dispatch. I am your host, David Dennison. It was a pleasure to spend this time with you. One more time, a plug. If you liked what you heard, please consider going over to Substack, where you can find and subscribe to the Dave's Dispatch newsletter. It's at denisonwrites.substack.com. I still have no sign-off, so I'm going to consult my list of famous sign-offs and go with, if it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press. Okay, fuck that. It's not Sunday. If it's not Meet the Press, so whatever. I love you. Bye.